fellowship and the prayers. Today, the subject of this sermon is the restoration of the worship of God in the church. We'll be looking at a lot of history and some scriptures and some quotes from some of the reformers. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Almighty and loving Father, we're debtors to your grace. You've been gracious to us in our personal lives, and you've been gracious to your people in the history of your church the last 2,000 years. Help us to understand what a great act of mercy and deliverance you worked in behalf of your people more than 500 years ago at the time of the Reformation of the church. Show us your hand in history and continue to show us your hand of mercy and deliverance in our own lives, in our own church this day. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Now, if you lived in Europe in the 1500s, early 1500s, a lot of people lived in the countryside, and they would come into town on market day, and as they perhaps came over the hill overlooking the town, they would see a... Roman Catholic church building, maybe a cathedral there in the middle of the town. And that was no accident that that structure was the key structure in the town because it represented the great sway that the Roman Catholic church had over the lives of the people. In those days, the church's shadow was over your life from the cradle to the grave. After you were born, you were baptized into the church. At a later age, it varied, maybe eight to 10 years old, you went through a confirmation ceremony. Uh, the bishop would pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. You were also allowed around that time to begin taking communion, which was called Eucharist or the Mass for the first time. I remember when I used to teach second grade bilingual here in Dallas, these little girls would come to school all dressed up some days in their finery. They were taking their first communion in the Catholic Church. Well, you would take, uh, you'd have your first communion, you'd be baptized, you'd be confirmed, and you would be expected to attend the church service, which was called the Mass. Mass comes from a word means dismissal. Uh, you would be expected to go to church every Sunday. You were expected to go confess your sins to the local priest. You had to go to the uh, church building, to the confession booth, and tell the priest your sins. He would per perhaps announce forgiveness or not. He may tell you you had to do some acts of penance, some kind of action, such as say so many Hail Marys. He might give you a hundred to say, even a thousand. Here's what it said. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mother, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Well, there's a focus here on Mary. She's the intercessor, more than Christ, for God's people. In Roman Catholicism, Mary is given a practically a divine status. At times, she's called the co-redemptrix. 
So the number of Hail Marys, you said, or what other action the priest may have told you to do, depending on what he thought were the seriousness of your sins, you had to do it. If you wanted forgiveness, if you committed a mortal sin, they had sins classified as mortal, very serious, or venal, like everyday sins, unless you confessed your sins and did what the priest prescribed, you were guilty before God and on the way to hell. When you entered into adulthood, perhaps you were married in the church. You may instead have taken orders, which means you entered the uh, monastery to become a monk or a priest or at the convent to become a nun. Every Sunday you were supposed to go to church, to go to the Mass. As you entered the building, you began to walk down the aisle. And then you would do a sign of the cross, and you would bow toward the front of the building because there was something very special at the front of the building. It was a box that held bread, communion bread. It was called the host. They believed that was actually the body of Jesus. Jesus was in that box. So you bowed before Jesus. According to their teaching, the bread in the box looked like bread, tasted like bread, felt like bread, but it was really Christ's body. That was its real substance. And when the Mass was said, only the priest ate the bread. And the people only got to eat the bread once a year. As far as the wine goes, only the priest drank the wine. The people were denied the wine. They believed the wine, like the bread, looked like wine, tasted like wine, but its actual real substance was the blood of Christ. They didn't want the common folk drinking wine because if anybody accidentally spilled some wine on the floor, that's disaster. The blood of Christ spilled on the floor. Well, uh, one of the other seven sacraments, they had seven of them, was called extreme unction. The way it lowered it temperature one degree if you would one of the other uh, sacraments extreme unction took place when a person made his final confession of sin before the priest who hopefully would come to his side before he died trying to be sure that all his sins had been confessed so that he could go towards heaven Probably he'd be going towards purgatory for a while to pay for his sins with some suffering before he could enter heaven. So this is the kind of religion that the people were subject, subject to. Now one of the greatest tragedies of Roman Catholic worship services is that it was all in Latin language. People did not understand Latin in Germany and England and so forth. Most of the priests, or many of the priests, did not understand Latin. They just memorized the liturgical forms. All the singing, for the most part, was by a choir in Latin. The people were attended, however, were required to attend these services. Not to attend was a serious sin. And not to confess your sin would put you in danger of hell. The great cause of this corrupted worship was because the Bible was hidden from the people. 
They did not know its content. They had no way to judge whether the Roman Catholic Church was teaching the truth of the Word of God or not. Over the centuries, the church had developed various traditions and practices that were contrary to the Word of God. The Bible was no longer the supreme authority in the Roman Catholic Church. The decisions of religious councils and bishops and popes formulated the doctrines that became supreme and authoritative over the Word of God. The people's lives and eternal destinies were in captivity to the Church of Rome and to its bishops and priests. Not to follow their rules and commands would put you in danger of hell. Fear, intimidation kept the population in submission to the Church of Rome. The pure preaching of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only basis for the salvation of sinners was not heard. The merciful sovereign God who rescues undeserving sinners because of Christ's work on the cross was not a doctrine of the church. In the mass, the worship service, they were taught that Christ, Christ himself was re-sacrificed every time the mass is performed. So the mass might have been performed seven or eight thousand times a day in Europe and that means Christ was sacrificed seven or eight thousand times on that day. In the liturgy of the Mass it concludes with a priest saying pray brethren that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. You see it was the priest's sacrifice not Jesus' sacrifice that was being talked about here. Well, this is a clear corruption of the teaching of the Word of God, as I think most of you know. How do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We do it according to the Scriptures. We follow the instructions, for example, of the Apostle Paul, who says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, he says, For I received from the Lord. He didn't think this up. It wasn't a tradition of man. He said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread was in remembrance of Christ for them all to partake of. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's telling his men, You must drink it in remembrance of me. They were all to partake of this. They were to eat this bread and drink the cup often until the Lord returns. So this is the, the biblical presentation of the Lord's Supper, the way it should be celebrated which we do, by God's grace, every Sunday. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What's happening in the Lord's Supper? We are fellowshipping, we are communing with Christ, rejoicing and taking the benefits of his redemptive work.
The mass, on the other hand, was a performance by the priests. The people only watched. They didn't participate in any active or dynamic way. They understood little of what was happening. All the service was in Latin, a foreign language. It continued like this for four and a half more centuries until 1960s in Vatican II, the mass began to be conducted in the languages of the people. Well, this captivity of the minds and hearts of the people of Europe would have gone on and on and on, uninterrupted, had not the Lord of the church decided to change things. He intervened in human history and he restored to the church the practice of the worship of God as it's set forth in the Old and the New Testaments. Roman Catholic religion was marked by legalism. You follow these rules and practices and you might eventually get to heaven and you might not. People were told they had to spend years, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years in purgatory suffering for their sins until they were clean enough to get into heaven. Their only hope of salvation was to acceptably participate in the seven sacraments that were held in the hands of the church. The church, they taught, had the keys to heaven, not Christ. But what does the Bible teach about some of these things? The Word of God teaches us of the saving, gracious power of God who awakens sinners from their spiritual death. He does this by bringing the gospel message to them and enabling them and causing them to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes, enters our lives, and awakens us from spiritual death. Something vital and crucial was missing in the Roman Catholic service of the Mass. That is the reading of the Word of God in the language of the people. Preaching of the Word of God in the language of the people. They needed to understand how they stood before God. They were sinners. They needed to understand the only way to heaven was through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Since they weren't taught how to be saved, most of them, I'm sure, were not saved. They participated in a religion and religious ritual, but they did not have a personal experience of salvation. They didn't know about the necessity of the new birth because they weren't taught it. They did not know the joy of the Lord. They didn't know about the assurance of sins forgiven and the free gift of eternal life. They only saw Christ from afar, but he was not close enough where they could reach out and embrace him by faith. They were kept in the chains of a legalistic religion that tantalized them with a the hope of heaven, but provided no certain roadmap as to how they might arrive in the heavenly city. They were like men dying of thirst in the desert, and they looked ahead and saw a mirage of an oasis. But when they arrived, there was no water. They continued to die of thirst. And so the people under this Roman Catholic system were dying spiritually. They were not drinking of the water of life who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Fear of hell, fear of rejection by God is totally removed 
when we come to God through faith in Christ. When we come to God through Christ, we enter into the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. We're free from the guilt and condemnation of our sins. Christ paid for them once for all on the cross. No further sacrifice is needed. Christ's death on Calvary, His shed blood, washed away the sins of His people once for all. It's more effective than bleach poured on a stain on a shirt removes the stain so Jesus' blood poured on our lives takes away completely all of our sin. Besides not having reading and preaching in their own language, the singing was in another language. There was no vital, heart-changing, life-transforming experience of salvation. The Christianity of Roman Catholicism needed a radical infusion of truth to deliver it from error. It needed a return to the Bible, which had become encrusted with the traditions of men over the centuries. The good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension was not preached in the language of the people. They could not understand the gospel, even if it had been preached. They could not believe in Jesus and be saved. The reason for worship, rejoicing in the saving grace of God, was absent. So there was no rejoicing, no singing of praises, no prayers of thanksgiving, no declarations of glory to God in the highest. What a change this was from 15 centuries earlier when the church was first formed. How far the church had drifted away from its anchor in the word of God. So much had been lost. Could it ever be recovered? Could the high praises of God once more flow from the lips of God's people? In his eternal counsels, God had an answer to this question. He decided that the long slide into false teaching and practice must stop. The error had to be exposed. The truth had to be brought out into the open. The time had come for renewal, for rediscovery for restoration of the truth of the word of God and the dynamic worship of the people of God. The thousand years of the dark ages was about to come to an end. The light of the everlasting gospel was about to be rekindled in the history of the church. This is what happened. In the 15th and 16th centuries, there was a cultural and intellectual movement in Europe which was a return to the study of classical Greek literature. It was called the Renaissance, and it resulted in a reopening and a restudy of the Greek New Testament by scholars. There was one Roman Catholic scholar named Erasmus. He published a fresh version of the Greek New Testament, and it spurred the study of the Greek Testament. They discovered, these scholars discovered the truth of the New Testament and they recognized quite quickly how far the religion of the New Testament was different from the Roman Catholicism being practiced in their day. The Roman church had hidden the way of salvation from the people, but the New Testament opened up clearly the way to be saved through faith in Christ. 
The Roman Catholic Church did all they could to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people in a language they could understand. The reformers sometimes sacrificed their lives by being burned at the stakes for their work and trying to get the Bible translated into the languages of the people. The Roman Catholic Church robbed the people of God of their ability to properly and joyfully worship God in the congregation. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, was changed to the Mass. And it was not a thankful celebration of Christ's completed work on the cross, but it was a man-made contrivance drenched in error and deception which contradicted the plain statements of Scripture. In their weekly performance of the Mass, week after week, the Roman Catholic priest allegedly re-sacrificed Christ in an unbloody manner, it was called. You know what that is? That is blasphemy. That is error. That is heresy. It's robbing Christ of his glory. Who are you, O Catholic priest, to re-sacrifice the Son of God who died once on Calvary's cross? What did Christ say before he expired on the cross? He said, it is finished. He had paid the price of redemption. He had borne the wrath of God for his people. We read in Hebrews 9, 26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. He did all that was necessary to save his people from their sins. The Roman Catholic Church commandeered Christ's great redemptive work and developed their own brand of sacrifices for sin. What arrogance, what error that men would usurp to themselves through the sacrifice of the Mass the power to pay for the sins of God's people. No wonder Martin Luther, that great German reformer, railed against the church and the Pope. Here's what he said one time. My dear Pope, I will kiss your feet and acknowledge you as supreme bishop if you will worship my Christ and grant that through his death and resurrection, not through keeping your traditions, we have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Well, how did Luther come to hold such strong convictions regarding the errors of the Roman Catholic system and such strong convictions regarding the truth and authority of God's word? It came about because he was a teacher of theology. He knew the Greek New Testament. As he studied and thought, he began to see there was a great difference between Roman Catholic theology and what they were teaching and what the Bible was teaching. The church was teaching that through their seven sacraments, a person could possibly earn enough righteousness to qualify for heaven. Well, Luther had tried that route. And he experienced dismal failure, trying to attain the righteousness that God requires. He learned that the only way to attain righteousness before a holy God is to believe in his Son, who bore our sins and rose for our justification. He would have agreed with another great reformer, John Calvin, who described saving faith like this. Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer but everything to receive. It was the Bible, the Word of God, that Luther discovered 
in that Bible the secret to ending his excruciating struggle to find acceptance with God. He just trusted Jesus Christ to forgive his sins and give him Jesus' righteousness. So he began to write and publish his beliefs that the church, the pope, the bishops could save no one but only Christ by his death and resurrection, by the importation of the Holy Spirit into human hearts could bring anyone out of the darkness of sin into the light of Christ's kingdom. <clears throat> now his, his writings greatly upset Pope Leo X. And the Roman Catholic leadership, Pope said one time about Luther, a wild boar has been let loose in the Lord's vineyard. And he was finally put on trial by the Roman Catholic Church at the Diet of Worms on April the 17th, 1521. He was told to recant, to deny your beliefs, to deny your writings. He said, can you give me a day to think about this? Because he knew his life. He could end up burning at the stake also. So he went and thought about it, and he came back the next day. And this is what he said, quote, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Praise God. I cannot and will not recant, recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. Later. The next day or so, he told one of his friends, I would gladly offer up my head to be lopped off a thousand times than to deny the gospel. Amen. From there, he had to go into hiding. He was a wanted man. But while he was being hid by one of his uh, prominent friends, he translated the New Testament into the German language in 11 weeks. Amazing. He was on fire. And he was pressing forward with all of his might, all of his intellectual training. And so the German Reformation was underway. Similar movements arose in Switzerland, England, as Christian scholars translated the Bible into the language of the peoples. <clears throat> the Bible is returned to the forefront of Protestant Christianity and these Reformation movements around Europe had deposed the dictatorship of popes and councils from their thrones because they had hijacked the biblical faith from the lives of the people. Luther once said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. Indeed, several of the leading reformers were burned at the stake because they disobeyed National laws which forbade the translating, reading, or teaching of the Bible in the language of the people. William Tyndale, the Englishman, <coughs> translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. He was a wanted man by the King of England. The King of England sent agents to try to capture him where he fled to continental Europe. They finally found him in Belgium. They tied him to a stake. They strangled him. They put explosives around the, the base of the pole that he was tied to. They lit the fire and he was blown to pieces. Before he had died, he said this, 
I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope. The restoration of the sacred scriptures of the Old and New Testament had volcanic repercussions in European Christianity. The power of granting or withholding salvation to the people was wrested from the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and placed back in the hands of Christ himself. In actuality, the Roman Church had no power to save or condemn anybody. But through their system, they led people to believe they had the power. The return to the Bible opened up the gates of heaven. Luther testified of his own conversion. He said this, There I began to understand the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives, and it's a gift of God, namely by faith. The merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and the very gates of paradise opened up before me. So these reformers, Luther, there were others such as Zwingli in Switzerland, Calvin in Geneva, Tyndale in English, were preaching the gospel, salvation through faith in Christ alone. In fact, the entirety of the word of God without the trappings and errors of Roman Catholicism, Catholicism began to be preached in those churches who had separated themselves from the Roman church. As the gospel was being preached clearly, people were coming to faith and growing as Christian disciples. Now the restoration of the word of God as a supreme authority in those churches that were caught up in the Reformation was simultaneous with something else that would begin to happen. This is what else happened. The restoration of biblical worship took place. I've already mentioned several areas where biblical worship took place, such as in the Lord's Supper, such as the preaching and the language of the people. Luther's contributions were monumental. It all began with the translation of the scriptures. This was an enormous change from hundreds of years of the Dark Ages where only a few of the Roman Catholic clergy understood what was in the Bible if they could read Latin. The people began to read the Bible in Germany. Luther's preaching opened up the Bible to their understanding. They were learning of Christ, learning of salvation, learning how to grow spiritually. Instead of going to church, and watching the priest perform his ceremony. They heard the Bible read, they could understand it. They heard it preached in their language. They were learning the word of God. They were growing as Christian disciples. It was a total change, a total transformation in their religious experience. Instead of deadness, there was now life. Instead of ignorance of the word of God, there was now knowledge. Knowledge is power. And in this case, the knowledge of the scriptures is life-changing. It's powerful to know and love God. To be able to kill sin, to send the devil to flight. 
The Roman Catholic liturgy in Latin was spiritually useless to the people because it was not understandable. It was a denial of the principle of edification. All things done in the Christian worship service should be understandable and edifying. We see this in such a text as 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Paul writes, What then, brothers, when you come together, when you come together to worship, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Here's the principle. Everything done in the Christian worship service is for edification, for understanding, for building the people of God up. Under the Roman Catholic system, the people were not built up. They were kept in the dark. They were left uninstructed in the true religion of the Bible. As we sit in our service today, we can hear everything in English. We probably take that for granted. Which is the first language of most of us. If we were in another country, such as Mexico or Venezuela, the language used in the churches would be the language of the people, Spanish. Well, in the kind providence of God, we live several hundred years after the, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. So we hear and enjoy our worship service in our native language. A great benefit that the people living before the Reformation, they did not have that. Now, Martin Luther was not only a skilled translator and preacher, but he was an accomplished musician. Once he said this about music. He said, a person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Well, that's a typical statement of Luther. He was strong in his statements, strong in his language. But you know what he did? He spread the Reformation beliefs and doctrines through the hymns that he and others wrote. So the people learned the doctrines of the evangelical faith as they sang together. Amen. Today we sang one of Luther's hymns at the time of confession. Out of the depths I cry to you based on Psalm 130. It's a hymn like his hymns full of biblical doctrine. Let me repeat for you the third stanza. It is God... It is in God we shall hope. Not in the Roman Catholic Church. It is in God we shall hope. And not in our own merit. No, not in our own religious works. We rest our fears in his good word. And trust his Holy Spirit. His promise keeps us strong and sure. We trust the holy signature inscribed upon our temples. He uses this strong, graphic, picturesque language. The holy signature, God's signature. This person belongs to me, invisibly written on our foreheads. Well, the choir in the Roman Catholic Church sang in Latin. But in the Lutheran churches, the people sang in the German language. They were implementing Ephesians 5, verse 18, which says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. This was biblical singing and worship. Worship as it was meant to be. The joy and praises of God 
had now been returned to the people of God. It has been said that the Reformation spread through Germany mainly by the singing of hymns. The biblical doctrines such as justification by faith alone became embedded in the people's minds and understanding as they sang about this. Another famous reformer who was born a generation after Luther was John Calvin. He carried the Reformation forward in Geneva, Switzerland. And in the Reformed churches, they sang also, but they sang psalms. They sang the psalms. They put the psalms to music and began to sing in the church. Even today, there's some Reformed churches who only sing psalms. But this singing of the psalms and hymns was a fulfillment of what Paul writes about in Colossians 3.16, the way they used to worship in the first century. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So the praises of God using the psalms and hymns were rising up all over Europe as the people sang in their own language. The reformation of the church had begun. The reformation fires were lit when the Bible was rediscovered and put into the language of the people. Now much of our worship services today in conservative evangelical churches such as ours perhaps we take for granted some of the things that we commonly do we believe in what's called expository preaching that as we go through a, a book or a passage and we open it up verse by verse explaining it in its context and its meaning originally and how it applies to us how we understand it verse by verse this was rediscovered particularly by a Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. He had studied the New Testament, and he began to preach. He just believed the Bible was the Word of God, so he said, I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and he started preaching it. Praise God. Verse by verse. And you know what? After preaching a while, he was converted. He became a Christian. By the power of the Word of God, he understood it as he preached it. And so he started another movement of the Reformation. What he was doing, as he was reading and preaching the Word of God, he was fulfilling what Paul had told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what Zwingli was doing. He was reading the Bible. He was exhorting the people. He was teaching them. You see, what we're talking about here is the restoration of biblical worship that took place because of the Reformation's return to the Bible as the guidebook, the playbook of how we should worship God. We're not left in the dark as to how God would have us worship Him. Acts 2.42, after the day of Pentecost, says the believers devoted themselves they weren't just nonchalant about it. They weren't just haphazard about it. They were devoted. Okay, they were committed to four things. The apostles' teaching. That's the word of God. The fellowship. The sharing together and the life in Christ and the word of God. The breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. And the prayers. So these are some basic guidelines 
in Acts 2.42 of what we to do when we gather together. We, we preach, we read from the Apostles' Doctrine, which is the New Testament. We break the bread of the Lord's Supper. We pray to God. We worship Him. We're devoted to the fellowship of supporting, loving, helping one another, our spiritual family here, often closer to us than members of our own blood-related families. So the rediscovery of the Bible, the restoration of its authority over the lives and over the church's worship, set the people of God free from the false teachings of Roman Catholicism and brought them into the light of the truth of, gospel, of God that's displayed in the Bible. The Reformation that happened in the early 16th century was the rebirth of the true church in church history, which had been kept in the chains of the traditions and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. God was setting his people free by the power of his word. Jesus, in his prayer to his Father, prayed for his disciples. He said, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Thank God that the truth of the Bible was restored to the church at the time of the Reformation. And so the church in every generation must look afresh at the Bible and seek to follow it and fulfill it in our lives and in the worship of our churches. So today, let us give thanks that God restored his word in his church at the Protestant Reformation. Thank God that the way of salvation was restored to the understanding of the people. Amen. And thank God that the, the way of worshiping God properly was restored to God's people. So let us continue to look to the word of God to instruct us in what to believe, how to come to Jesus, and how to worship him properly. If we do these things, we'll not be unfruitful in our service to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you did, through your servants, what was needed to restore your church to resting on the foundation of the Bible for all our belief and practice. As heirs of the Reformation ourselves, help us to be true to your word and all that we believe about you, about the way of salvation and the way we should properly worship you. Thank you, Father, for all your mercies to us, our needy people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In response today, we're going to sing this hymn called Renew Thy Church. So let's stand together, please.